listening to the Sunday Sermon Podcast of Grace Life Church in Middleburg, Florida. You can find more information about our church at thegracelifechurch.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast for weekly biblical content. As you turn there, I want us to turn back in time about 10 years ago, sometime in the early 2010s, there was a really popular viral trend of oddly satisfying videos. You all remember that? (laughs) Apparently it's still going on today because as I looked at YouTube, you can find compilations that are like three hours long of these oddly satisfying things to fall asleep to. Um, and so I pulled a clip, just a really quick one, just because if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're like, what, what is this? And it's a bunch of just random things. So like here you can see this is going to be a perfect bottle fill. Right, and you're just, you wait for that moment. Oh. Right, we've, <laughs> we've got this, this, I don't even know exactly what he's doing, but he's doing something fancy with that brick and making these nice little tiles out of it. This is probably my favorite. <laughs> right, and, and it's incredible, right? We have this response to it, and we go, oh, man, that's really cool. I don't even know what's happening, but, like, there's something about it, right, that just gets us excited. Well, also, as the Internet it does, there was a response to that craze that was the oddly unsatisfying video. So we have pretty extreme reactions to this. And they're simple. It's a, they're short. They're simple things. And yet there's something inside of us that we want to be satisfied. We want to have that, you know, perfect cake cut or that, you know, uh, perfect fill. We haven't spilled over in our cup, whatever it is. Um, and so as we look at Psalm 63, we're going to see really where our true satisfaction should come from. Because those videos are great. But... That should not be our source of satisfaction. I know it's a little bit silly, but did you see how like how well how we responded to that? Like the response in the room, we were all waiting, <laughs> which is it's it's crazy to think about that that hole inside of us that just wants something to be perfectly set up. Um, and so as we look at Psalm 63 and our our perfect God and how He satisfies us, um, I hope that you'll see that that's. That's really where we should have that same response to how God works in our lives that we do to those videos. So let's read together Psalm 63. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Verse 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. 
My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with my joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. So as we've been studying these psalms, um, sometimes they have these little explanations at the beginning and sometimes they don't. This is another one that does. It says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And so most commentators believe it to belong to the time uh, in David's life where he was in exile being chased by Saul before David has been anointed as king, uh, but he is, but, and Saul is insanely jealous of him and, and going and trying to kill him. So David is in exile, uh, not quite king yet, um, but knowing that he is to be king one day. And so being in the wilderness of Judah, we can see at the very beginning of this psalm a really uh, clear picture of what's happening spiritually for David here as well. He starts out with, Oh God, you are my God. Which, that seems kind of repetitive. Why does he say it like that? But he's really pointing out two important things. By saying, Oh God, he's saying, You are the true God, the only God. And then by saying, You are my God, he's putting himself into the relationship with God. Right? It's not, Oh God, the God of creation. It's, Oh God, you are my God. And then the next phrase, he says, Earnestly, I seek you. Some of your translations might say early or early in the morning, because that's the word picture in Hebrew. It's the idea that it's the very first thing on David's mind. When he wakes up in the morning, the first thing that he wants is to seek after God. Uh, and then he goes on to describe, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you. The need for God is so great that David's body is literally aching with longing. And then we get, we get this picture of the desert. Right, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Right, it's a place where he's looking around. He doesn't see growth. He doesn't see the opportunity for uh, sustenance. But David isn't waiting for his circumstances to get better before he seeks after God. And he is seeking God first in this situation. He continues, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now, David is recalling what it's like to worship God in the sanctuary, but he does know that he can see God's glory and power revealed not just in the sanctuary, but also in the wilderness. And his great desire to get out of the wilderness is not so that he can be comfortable, but so that he can continue to praise God. One commenter says it this way, It is not that David might see his friends again, and be restored to the pleasures and gaieties of the court, but that he might have access to the sanctuary, not to see the priests there and the ceremony of the worship, 
but to see God's power and God's glory. This line of thought continues in the next verse. Because he says, because of your steadfast love, that's that hesed that we, we have in Hebrew, that covenantal love, because of your steadfast love, is better than life, my lips will praise you. So David is saying the love of God is more precious to him even than his own life. And so his response is praise. And as uh, this section rounds out, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. David, in the wilderness, potentially being threatened, as we saw at the end of the psalm, and we'll talk about people are coming to kill him, is still choosing to praise God in all of that. And so one of the things we learned from looking at the beginning of this psalm is that praising God must be the mainstay of our whole lives. Praising God must be the mainstay of our whole lives. David is remembering God's past works and looking forward to everything God will bring in his life. And whatever it is that's coming, whether it's good or it's bad, he is choosing every day to be thankful in that day. We see this theme throughout Scripture. Uh, one that sticks out to me is the letter to the first letter to the Thessalonian church. Um, if we read through that book, we see that they're facing unexpected deaths and they don't know how to feel about it. They're facing persecution. Um, and, and Paul is encouraging them, you know, there is a day of the Lord coming. You will be reunited with your brothers and sisters in Christ who have died. And that persecution is not meaningless. Um, and that's the letter in a nutshell. But at the very end of 1 Thessalonians 5, near the end of the letter, Paul gives these instructions to the church. In verse 16, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So those three short little verses, all of them really have the same theme because we're rejoicing when? Always, right? And we're praying without ceasing. Now, does that mean to be on your knees and be constantly? No, right? But the idea is that we don't just pray when we need help. We don't just pray when... We're at church, right? The idea of praying without ceasing is we are continually in conversation with God, whatever we're going through, whatever, whether we're at work, whether we're at home, at school, right? Our communion with God is a constant conversation, not just a special time that we set aside, although we do that as well. And then finally, verse 18 says, give thanks in most circumstances. No, all circumstances, right? So, whether good or bad, right, our, our heart has to be turned towards realizing that God is involved in all parts of our life because it says this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Right? It's not a surprise to God, whatever we're going through. And so when we learn to thank God in all circumstances, we will find satisfaction in our sovereign provider. When we thank God in all circumstances, we find satisfaction in our sovereign provider. Again, we see this throughout Scripture. Uh, one story you may be familiar with is the story of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham is bringing Isaac up onto the mountain in Genesis 22 uh, to offer him as a sacrifice to God. 
And Abraham doesn't know what's going to happen, but he knows he must follow through with God's plan. And, if, again, if you're familiar with the story, we know that God does provide a ram instead of Isaac for the sacrifice. And he's given the name Jehovah Jireh, the Lord shall provide. In Matthew 6, 25 and 26, Jesus is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, so we'll actually be studying out this passage uh, later on in this year. But Jesus tells his disciples not to be anxious about life. Right? Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God is our great provider. And when we look to God to satisfy our needs, we don't find ourselves in those places where, as we observed with those videos, things fall short because we've got our heart and our eyes on the right place. Matthew, this passage in Matthew is talking about provisions from a physical sense, right? Food and clothing. And we do see a little bit of that also back in Psalm 63. So if we continue on uh, in verse 5, it says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Maybe like the cake we saw. I'm not sure. So, some of your translations translate that as like marrow or meat. The idea is that this food is extremely nourishing. It's not just bread. It's not just enough to sustain and get through to the next time we eat. But it's something that is fully and completely satisfying. Charles Purgeon says, There is in the love of God a richness, a sumptuousness, a fullness of soul-filling joy comparable to the richest food with which the body can be nourished. This is the picture David is painting. And his response, as we see as we continue on, he says, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. It's an outward response to this inward filling. But we see that it's not just in the moment of, okay, I've been satisfied right here, I will praise you, and then I'm done. Because David goes on to say, when I remember you upon my bed, and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Remember that David is out in the wilderness as he's writing this psalm. So nighttime is not necessarily a safe time. Um, it also may have been a time that would have felt long to him because of the inactivity of travel, and also the watchfulness that's needed, um, not just from potential enemies, but from the wild, the animals that are out there. Um, so even in this place of insecurity, David is still choosing to remember God and meditate on him. And then verse 7, he says, for you have been my help. It's interesting, a lot of psalms have phrases where someone is calling out to God for help. I think we even saw that last week in Psalm 77. But here David isn't calling out for help. Instead, he's remembering that God has already helped him. And then the next phrase, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. David is recognizing God's presence in the current moment. He might not be able to see God, but the idea of this, this picture of shadow of your wings is a, a poetic thing that's used in a handful of psalms. And it's the idea that 
I might not be able to see God actively right now in this moment, but I can trust that his presence is resting over me. We all live in Florida, and we all know what it's like to get out of the sun and into the shade. A lot of times, though, are you looking at the object that's providing the shade? Not really, right? We, we were like in the heat, and we had our heads down, like, oh, there's a spot there. And we go into the shade, but we're not necessarily always paying attention to the object that's making the shade. So, again, this idea of shadow of your wings, David might not actively see God in that moment, but he can tell that God is having a presence and an influence here because he can feel the peace that comes in that shadow. And his response to that is, I will sing for joy. Right? This recognizable presence of God brings David to rejoice. Again, he's not just going, okay, I'm okay. Right? He is actively praising God. And then he paints this picture here in verse 8. He says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So David's soul clinging close to God. The, the word picture here in Hebrew is the idea of being glued together. Um, so the, that David's soul is so close to God, following him as one would be following a master teacher and, and trying to do and, and achieve all the things that that teacher is teaching him. But at the same time, David recognizes it's not just, oh, I'm doing a good job of holding on to God. Because he says, your right hand upholds me. He is giving all of the credit and saying, God, I'm, I'm staying close to you, but I know that you're really the one that's holding on to me. You're the one that's keeping me upright. We see this thought echoed uh, in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. It's probably two of my favorite verses. I feel like I use them often, but it's just a great picture of this, this sense of our relationship with God and what God does with us. Because it says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Cling your soul close to God. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Your right hand upholds me. So our, our sanctification is not an easy process. It is work but it's great work that brings us joy, and it's not a work that we do on our own. It's not just our trying to be good enough, trying to stamp the card and get all the right things, but knowing that God is forming us to be more like his son. So David has a clear relationship with God, as we can see in the first part of this psalm. And as we think about how we have a relationship with someone, right? a lot of that comes from talking, conversation, maybe working together, being around each other. So as we think about how we relate to God, one of the primary ways that we do that today is through his word. His word reveals his character and his will. And it's God's word that really presents for us what it is that, not just what God wants for us, but who God is and, and the truths that we have there to be able to approach whatever's happening in life. So studying God's word must be the means of finding answers in life. We talked last week, if you were here, about this idea of meditate. Uh, we see in verse 6, he says, I will remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Remembering that idea is not that we 
sit and hum and put on crystal bells, but that we are clearing our minds so that we can fill it with the knowledge of God. And that knowledge of God helps us in, again, whatever we might be dealing with. If we're feeling lonely, we can see in God's word that God is present and with us. If we are afraid, we can see that God is peace and provides peace. If we are confused, we know that God is truth and we can trust his word to clear up when things are ambiguous. If we're feeling guilty, we can see that God is merciful, that he does not hold on to every sin in the way that we do for ourselves, but that he's separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. If we feel undeserving, we can see that God is gracious. When we feel overwhelmed, we can look and see that God is still sovereign over all things. If we're grieving, we know that God is near to the brokenhearted. Right? This is what studying God's word helps us to, to see. I like Legos, as every 30-year-old man should. <laughs> and Legos are great. But... If I just look at the box, if I get the Legos out and I look at the box, I can try and build something on my own and it might be interesting. I can attempt to make what's on the box and I might get pretty close, but the box only gives one part of the picture. But if I open up those instructions, then I can see all of the inner workings. And again, if you've played with Legos, you know there's all kinds of little pieces that you never see when the product is finished, but you need those little pieces inside so that the outside part doesn't crumble. The instructions reveal that all the parts that are necessary to create the final product. It's not a perfect analogy, but we should think about our Bibles in this way. If we're thinking about life, if we're trying to deal with a circumstance and we're just looking at the picture of what we want, we're not using the Bible to inform what should be inside of there, it's always going to fall apart. Right? God's Word, studying God's Word must be the means of our finding our answers. And... As we look in God's word and we consider where David's at in this psalm, right? He's in the desert. He's being chased by people who want to kill him. Um, and he is not focusing on those circumstances, but instead he's reflecting on God's character. He's looking and calling out that God has uh, satisfied him with, satisfied his soul, that he has been a help, that he is the most important thing to seek. So David is using God's character to calm his own heart in the circumstance. So when we reflect on God's character, we find satisfaction in our sure foundation. When we reflect on God's character, we find satisfaction in our sure foundation. So this picture of foundation uh, again, we see it in several places in the Bible. Uh, one example is in Isaiah 28.6. Uh, this is a messianic prophecy, and Isaiah is talking about Jesus. And so the verse says, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And we see New Testament writers referencing this back as Jesus, as the precious cornerstone, right? a tested stone. We know that Jesus was uh, tried just like we are. He was tempted by the devil, yet was perfect. 
one of the places where it talks about being a foundation is in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, wherever we're at in our journey through this life, whether we are a new believer or whether we have been saved for years, we all have the same foundation. And as we build on that foundation, right, we don't want to just look at the surface and try our best, but we want to really look into the instructions and the picture that we have that God gives us. Now, this would be a great place to end, but the psalm doesn't end there. And some of the psalms, as we read them out, end with these situations that maybe don't feel like they apply to us. Because, I don't know about you, but I've never been in the wilderness being chased by someone who's going to kill me. Maybe Jeremy has. I was, that's the only person I can think of in here that may have something similar to that. But <laughs> So, the rest of this psalm, we're going to study it out, but... Um, we have to be careful when we look at the Psalms and, and it talks about enemies and these, uh, these wartime circumstances that thankfully, by the grace of God, we don't face. There's still application. There's still truths in, in these moments. So we don't want to ignore them or push them aside. Uh, but we want to dig in to see what David is saying and what's happening here. So in verse 9, Psalm 63, it says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. So David's deep communion with God that we've seen described in the first eight verses doesn't take away his problems. Right? David's relationship with God doesn't take away his problems. But David is also confident in God as a just God to deal with the circumstances at hand. Because he says, these people, those who seek to destroy my life, shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, which... We know will literally happen as David continues in his journey to being king that Saul and his sons and his men are killed in battle, which one of the thoughts there is what David is saying is my enemies don't get the joy of just living out a life and, and being able to die in a more natural way. Right? They're going to be killed by the sword because they are using the sword to attack me. And then he says there shall be a portion for jackals. The Hebrew word for different animals, some of your translations might say fox uh, or some other animal. I looked up because I was curious. Jackals are kind of cute, but they apparently like just eat dead bodies. They're called opportunistic omnivores. So they eat, <laughs> they eat whatever's in front of them. So the idea here is that Again, the, not only is the death not peaceful, but there's not even going to be a, a proper burial for these people, right? David's it's really pretty strong language. Again, something that I, I don't connect with. I can't imagine being like, ah, I hope you get eaten by jackals. Like, it's, it's probably a great insult if you want to use it, uh, but it's just it's a it's a hard thing sometimes to read and go and try to put ourselves in the mind of David, who's being pursued and, and about to be killed if he's not careful. But then he finishes the psalm with this. He says, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars 
will be stopped. So David is not king yet, but he is looking forward to the time where he will be king uh, because he has already been told by the prophet Samuel that this is God's divine purpose. This is God's designation. He is the next in line. And because of that, he's letting God guide the narrative and calling out that those who would swear, which this idea is that all the people that would make a sincere and open profession of God's name, shall then be able to glory in God. That's path A. The second path is the path of the liars, right? And that path that does not follow God, the mouths of liars, it will be stopped. So whether that happens in David's lifetime or not, he knows that God will not allow a, a false witness against his own character. So as David is looking forward to the position to come, we also, with David, can look forward to our position in Christ and what that means for our future. Uh, as we consider something like Romans 8, where Paul says that we're more than conquerors. We may not be feeling like we're conquerors, but we know that God is conquering our sin and our, our death and that God is using things in our lives for us to overcome, to become more like Jesus. And so we must recognize that following Jesus' example is the motivation for our choices. Following Jesus' example must be the motivation for our choices. As this psalm ends with a picture of enemies, we've got to stop and consider a few things. If you read that or any other part of the Bible that talks about bring vengeance to my enemies, and you think that your boss or your coworker or your family or someone is your enemy, let's consider Jesus' words about enemies whenever we, we think about these things. Luke 6.27 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Easy to say, hard to do. But we have to remember the people in our lives are not our enemies. right? They are gospel opportunities. If you are, is that something that you struggle with? I don't have time to read through it. But Proverbs 24 also addresses this idea of how do we treat our enemies. This is not just a New Testament idea. This isn't, oh, this is the Jesus way. This is always was God's design. So who are our enemies then? Ephesians 6 tells us who our enemies are. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. And it goes on to list what that armor of God looks like. But our battle is not with our, our human authorities. It's not with 
our, our families. It's not with the people around us, right? Our battle is a cosmic battle against the devil and his schemes to try and throw us off. So when we're considering how we treat other people, what are we to do when we're having that struggle of, I, I don't like this person, I don't, I don't know how to re- relate to this person, and this situation that I'm in doesn't feel like it's going to get better. We have to give those things over to God. When we trust God in his timing, we find satisfaction in our great protector. In the same way that David at the end of this psalm doesn't say, give me the sword to kill my enemies or defend myself. And even in the story of David, there are several times, at least twice, that he has the opportunity to kill the king Saul, and he chooses not to because he knows that's not God's will. That would be David's will taking over. David is trusting in God in his timing. And when he does that, he rejoices. He has that fullness of life that we've read in this psalm. When we trust God in his timing, we find satisfaction in our great protector. Again, this is not a surprise. The, the persecutions that we might face, whether it be for being believers or just for trying to do what God is asking us to do, not necessarily from a religious standpoint, but just from a societal, uh, the way the society works and the way that we know we ought to act. 1 Peter 3, as we finish up today, addresses exactly how to deal with that. 1 Peter 3.8 says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So part of how we deal with difficulties in life is being in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this is for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Again, that's an easy word to hear and a hard thing to do sometimes. Because we want we want to get back. We want the revenge. We want what think we think is going to be satisfying, and we know that when we indulge in that, like those videos we saw, it's a momentary thing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But... In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The mouths of the liars will be stopped. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. So whatever it is that we are facing, to all of life's circumstances, we can only find our total satisfaction in God. He's our sovereign provider. He's our sure foundation. 
He's our great protector. And like David does in this psalm, when we choose to reflect on God's character, when we choose to meditate on who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised for our future, those things will then keep us from anxious, worry, defeated feelings and instead be able to tap into the satisfaction that only God can provide. Let's pray.